Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Marooned on the cold satellite of a dying sun, light years away from home, for Rex, there was only one escape, but Carl called it murder. Distress Signal by Ross Rockland. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Born in 1913 in Cincinnati, Ohio, Ross Rockland said his love of science fiction began at the age of 12 when he said a black janitor introduced him to the genre. Rockland remembered the story that turned him into a lifelong fan. It was the first installment of E.E. E. Smith's The Skylark of Space in the August 1928 issue of Amazing Stories. In 1939, he attended the first World Science Fiction Convention in New York City where he met and became lifelong friends with Ray Bradbury, among others. Rockland's professional writing debut, Man of Iron, was published in Astounding Stories magazine in August 1935. He was 22 years old. He followed that up with seven more stories in the 1930s. The peak of his writing career occurred in the 1940s, when he had 60 short science fiction stories published. There were 15 more in the 1950s. Rockland stopped writing in 1954 because he developed an extremely painful affliction of the face and jaw. He found that he could forget the pain only when he was involved in some kind of physical activity or when socially engaged with others. When he was alone, the pain tended to monopolize his attention and thus made writing very difficult, if not impossible. 
So what do you do when you can't do what you love? Well, Ross Rockland supported himself as a cab driver and dispatcher for the next 15 years. He resumed writing with about a dozen stories in the late 1960s and early 70s. Today's story was his first and only offering in 1947. It appeared just before his friend Ray Bradbury's story, Rocket Summer, appeared in the spring 1947 edition of Planet Stories magazine. Turn to page 35 for Distress Signal by Ross Rockland. The years passed relentlessly, ticked off, one, two, three, four, by the big lone planet Werda as it moved with ponderous sureness around the dying red star. Sometimes, in the first year after they were marooned, the two runaway boys, Carl Wyant and Rex Oberling, crawled from the grottoes, chambers, and labyrinthine tunnels which the Whartons had driven deep beneath the planet's crust, and with a chill lonesomeness looked out into the vastness of space where the stars brooded. One of those stars, thirty-five light-years away, was Sol, around which swung the planet Earth. They could not think of Earth without a brightness coming to their eyes. Sometimes the younger boy, then seventeen, would whisper, I wish we'd never left home, Carl. And Carl would say, But we left, so let's take our medicine like men. Yes, they're leaving home, leaving their parents, their friends, their whole world could not be changed. Yet it seemed to them that their punishment was out of all proportion to their crime. Thinking back on it, Carl Wyant no longer remembered the petty grievance against his parents which made him decide to run away. Mainly, of course, it had been because his father dropped his keys to the interstellar spaceship he had recently requisitioned from the Space Council. Both Carl and his buddy Rex, the young fellow who lived next door and belonged to the same scout troop, had been caught up with the idea of visiting the stars without parental supervision. To visit the stars, that was a thrilling thought. At first, they planned to be gone a month, but after landing on one of the Centaurian planets four and a half light years away, the tremendous excitement that gripped them burned away thoughts of their parents, who must certainly be suffering agonies because of their disappearance. Beyond Centauri were other stars, and others beyond them. They never tired, as the subetheric warp hurled them through the dark reaches of infinity at several times light speed. For the first time, they were living. By this time, the alarm had gone throughout the known universe. Two boys on the loose, Carl, an expert at Morse code, deciphered the wild dit-dit-das. Boy, are they looking for us. Rex's deep chest came out. We'll be pretty famous when we get back, I guess. The thought pleased him. Those smart Alex that always picked on me at school will change their tune. Ah, oh, Rex, nobody ever picked on you. Carl was slimmer than Rex, though a year older. He added, all you had to do was join in the fun and you'd have got along swell. A dangerous flush crept up from Rex's thick, powerful neck. I say they picked on me, Carl said hastily. Okay, okay. He dropped the subject. 
Sometimes Rex could be pretty touchy, but he was handy to have around and most of the time was a good guy. Both fellows had studied celestial navigation and mechanics, but Rex had it all over Carl when it came to handling the small ship, so Carl let him take the controls most of the time. Suddenly, the ship had gone haywire. Neither Carl nor Rex was technician enough to understand that the etheric warp engines had been overdriven. The engines, down to the last accumulator cell, exploded with a mighty tearing roar that blew gaping holes in bulkheads, deck plates, and overheads. Carl was knocked out, but Rex held on. He crash-landed the ship on Werda, the lone planet of the unlisted dying red star. The ship landed in a snowbank, and the heat of the landing turned tons of snow into steaming, boiling water. By the time they had inventoried the situation, there was a smooth lake of ice around them, and the ship was frozen in, up to the edge of the airlocks. Rex said shakily, We'll have to use the auxiliary engines, which was a bit optimistic. The auxiliaries weren't etheric warpers. They were rocket engines. The fuel a ship like this carried would take it a few billion miles. But what was that in the vastness of interstellar space? with the nearest solar system two light years away. Carl's long, slim fingers bit mercilessly into the palms of his hands. His voice was a thin cry of protest, drifting out over the sterile vistas of Warda, the ice planet. Rex, we're done for. We can't get back. We're marooned. They were marooned, but not done for. The Wordens found them one day and took them to their city a thousand feet under the planet. These Wordens, the few of them that remained, were quiet, kindly people. Ages ago, they had fought their last retreat from the bitter surface cold. They had dug beneath the crust. They were savages now, their former mighty civilization forgotten, and were unlearned save in agriculture and the skillful breeding of such fur and meat-producing animals as the coal, the frigga, the hasknor. And since they were human in form themselves, they accepted these strangers that came among them. They never came to the surface of Warda, but that unexplainable sense of theirs which enabled them to perceive disharmony, much as one flinches at a sour discord, brought them up to investigate. Carl was grateful to them for their simple wisdom, their understanding. From the first, however, Rex was a sour chord among them, an inner conceit, perhaps growing out of a rare consciousness, painted him with an unmasked hostility. But it was all of a year after their arrival before Mahort, chief of the Wardens, revealed his feelings to Carl. He drew Carl into his megan, his rock dwelling, one day. Mohort was tall as Carl, but his eyes were faceted and insect-like. Great horny reptilian lumps stood out on his bony joints, and his smoothly scaled skin reflected the eternal fluorescence of this underground land like a polished mirror. Carl's smile was rueful when Mohort explained about Rex. Rex never was one to get along with people. He told me you people don't like him. How sad, said Mort. He's never stopped dreaming that we might get back to Earth. 
If only, said Mahort, he would join us at our festivals as you do. If only he would laugh when we gather for meals. But ah, he will do none of these things. Many times he sits in his megan and broods. You say he insists there is a way to return to your planet? Carl was embarrassed for his friend. When we first landed, he explained, Rex thought that somehow we could use the auxiliaries. Ah, yes, said Mahort, trying hard to understand these things which were strange to him. The auxiliaries. You see, we can manufacture unlimited quantities of rocket fuel with the fuel generator that most ships carry. It's a catalytic process, the raw material being any fairly dense rock. The auxiliaries were a sort of obsession with Rex. I couldn't control him. In the few days before you found us, he manufactured seven or eight tons of myrbohydrate. He filled the ship full. I let him have his way. We lifted the ship and left Werda. Rex was certain we could find another planet and get back to Earth by a stepping stone method. Ah, but there are no other planets near enough, said Mahort, recalling this fact which Carl had previously taught him. Within light years, as I say, I let Rex have his way until half the fuel was used up. Then I had to fight him. Carl looked ashamedly at his fists. I knocked him out as we came back to Werda, but somehow he never gave up the idea that we could use the auxiliary somehow. How very sad. And you say there is little chance of the earth people coming for you? Very little. Werda and its son aren't even entered in the star catalog. It's an unlisted system, although the Stellar Survey Institution has been working like crazy the past hundred years to survey the whole works. Mahort touched the boy's hand sympathetically. Some day they will come for you. But in the meantime, it would be wonderful if your friend saw the futility of his ways. During the first year of their stay on Warda, Rex stayed close to Carl, confiding in him, making those trips to the surface of the snowed underworld. Then he took to wandering the great winding corridors and chambers and dead underground cities of Werda alone. Carl would have liked to explore with him, for there was an unending fascination in this dying civilization. Once upon a time the Wertons had been great. The quaint webbed architecture of the spired and domed buildings, the delicate traceries on the walls, and the sculptured figures standing in the squares. These were a timeless wonder. But Rex didn't want Carl along. For Rex had closed up clam-like. His broad square face held a sullen fanaticism. And Carl knew he had his mind set on escape. Carl went to Rex's Megan and sat on his spider silk chair and whiled away the time by reading a scroll from the Wharton Library until Rex should return. Both Carl and Rex had learned the complex language, the reading, the writing, the speaking of it, though Carl was much the more proficient. Rex came in silently, a big man-sized fellow with pale, beardless cheeks dressed Indian-like in the thin, cured leather of the coal. His moccasins padded, and Carl looked up from the scroll with a start. Rex said shortly, Hello, Carl. 
he threw himself on the pile of sleeping furs in the corner, locked his hands behind his head, and stared straight up at the fluorescent ceiling with hard, unblinking eyes. Carl uncomfortably put the scroll away. Rex, I want to have a talk with you. Shoot, said Rex. You're not making it very easy for yourself, Rex. Oh, you're going to start moralizing again. I wouldn't call it moralizing. I'm getting fed up with the way you act, if you want it straight. The Whartons are swell people, and I get along with them fine. But it's just as if I was marooned alone. What I mean is, I don't have anybody to talk to. Rex's lips curled in a half-smile. Maybe you haven't treated me half-decent either, if you want to know it. I haven't. Nope. You want to stick here the rest of your life in these crummy, cold, underground rat holes. No soap. I'm going to get back to Earth somehow. The auxiliaries, Carl said sarcastically. Rex came to his knees with a violent motion, eyes burning. Don't talk to me like that, Carl. I've got to get away out of here. Yeah, Carl refused to be intimidated. How's the mastermind going to work it? Rex paused and then said slowly, I'm going to create a distress signal. Distress sig- Carl stiffened incredulously. Rex, you're nuts! Rex smiled a slow, secret, satisfied smile. I don't think so. Remember when we were scouts? Remember that time we got lost in the Big Neck Valley? We burned green wood and got a smoky fire started and used a blanket to send up a smoky SOS signal. We knew the rest of the troop was somewhere near and would see the signal. They came and got us. Well, this is the same thing. We're lost. This solar system never has been discovered. But we both know we're still in the known universe. All around us, maybe no more than 50 or 60 light days off, are traffic lanes, passenger ships, freighters. Then there's the SSI. It has ships everywhere. I figure if we send out a distress signal, they're bound to see it over the sub-etheric fifth-order ray detector. They'll see that signal as soon as I get started. Carl was quiet. He was worried. This was a turn of affairs he hadn't expected. He remembered how fixed Rex's mind was on the subject of escape. Too fixed. Almost fanaticism. He hoped with all his heart Rex wasn't sick, yet that the kid should kneel there with that brightness in his eyes and suggest sending up a distress signal which was to be sent across billions of miles of space. All right, Rex, he said gently. I'm listening. You're to send up a distress signal and attract the attention of a stellar survey ship. A derisive smile grew on Rex's lips. You're listening, he scoffed. Liar, you think I'm bats, but I'll show you. He lay down again and turned his face to the wall, and shortly Carl heard his deep breathing. Carl left. That was in the second year, but another year passed. Carl found himself growing up. He had the shoulders of a man, and he could look back with a whimsical ruefulness on the immaturity which had led him and Rex to run away from home like callow ten-year-olds. Carl longed for Earth, no less than Rex. 
Unlike Rex, he subdued the longing. But whenever his lonesome thoughts threatened to engulf him, he diverted himself by climbing the thousand feet to the planet's surface. It was on such a voyage that he found the spaceship gone. Carl and Rex had agreed to leave the ship on an eminence so that if anybody did come, they would see the ship and investigate. But the ship was undeniably gone, and Carl knew Rex had taken it. He stood on the icy mesa where they had parked it, and Carl looked out on the drear vastness of Warda with sick eyes. He refused to believe Rex had gone away and left him. He stayed there for hours, waiting, then reluctantly went back into the bowels of Warda. Rex showed up for the evening meal, though, taking his place at the great long yi, the festival table, where the forty-odd Wurtons who remained had their meals. After the meal, Carl cornered him. Rex twisted away from Carl's detaining hand. I've got a right to take a ride if I want to, haven't I? Carl felt guilty at having even asked, the way Rex put it. Rex did have that right. Carl let it slide. But the frequent disappearance of the ship troubled him increasingly. Every time he stood hip-deep in snow on the upper world and saw the ship was gone, a chill worked through his heart. He would find himself looking into the lowering dark sky at the impersonal stars, fastening his gaze on the dying red star around which Werther revolved. It was not a large sun. In another million years, it would burn out. Then Werda would truly be dead. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He was convinced there was more to Rex's use of the ship than the loneliness of a 19-year-old wanting to take a ride. Rex had a purpose, yet he let it slide until the end of the fourth year. Then his interference was not his doing. He was wandering far underground when a runner came panting up. My heart must see you in his megan, the runner panted. Carl went at once, heart constricted. Nothing ever happened in these underground caves. Whatever Mahort wanted to see him about was urgent. Mahort met him at the entrance and gripped his arm. His eyes bored into Carl's. I sense that something is wrong, friend Carl, he said. It is a great terror in my breast. It is about Rex, of course. I see, I see a great flame. Now tell me what you know. Carl blurted out the story. He's making plenty long trips someplace, he said huskily. He's been caving in a big hillside of rock these past couple years, 
making merbohydrate. Mahort's fear showed in his eyes. There is no place for him to visit, not a planetary body within countless billions of miles. Mahort paced. We should not have this trouble, he said fretfully. I am most annoyed with Rex. Look at us of Warda. Do we not know we are doomed? That the unhealthful conditions beneath Warda are producing a sterility that will soon destroy us, as if we had never been? Yet we are gay and take what there is of life. Why must Rex make us all unhappy? And I feel he is planning something that can never be undone. He hesitated. Carl, this merbohydrate, is it dangerous? Carl laughed. Just about the peppiest explosion known to the human race. He touched Mahort's arm. I'll find out what he's planning. Carl went straight to the surface and stood in the cave opening, his breath hanging in puffy clouds of white. Rex was at that moment letting down the ship's gangplank. He wheeled the fuel generator out on its short tripod. All day, Carl watched as Rex set pills of merbohydrate into the rock face of the snow-shorn worked-over hill and detonated them. Tons of chip rock cascaded toward the mouth of the generator. Rex panted as he worked with a square-point shovel. The 22-pound merbohydrate ingots came rolling out at the rate of one a minute. Rex carried the ingots into the ship. As the Red Star was about to settle for the night behind the sharply silhouetted horizon, Rex wheeled the generator back into the ship. About that time, Carl panted up the hill to the mesa level. Rex, he called. Rex stood scowling near the airlock. Plainly, Carl was not welcome. Carl panted. Going for a ride? Rex's shoulders, broader by far than Carl's, bunched up. He growled. Yeah, I'm taking a ride. Swell, I'll go with you. Nope, why not? Rex turned, and with a single motion jumped to the edge of the airlock. He jeered. I don't want any Boy Scouts along with me this trip. Goodbye. Carl felt a rage he had never really shown Rex. He leaped. All it got him was a bad fall on the slippery ice underfoot. When he finally got to his feet, the airlock door was whining shut. A few seconds later, the ship leaped away, the rocket apertures throwing out their blatting swords of energy. The ship roared skyward. Carl stood looking after it, a wet crawling on his skin. He was terribly frightened. The worst part of it was he didn't know what was frightening him. He turned and started back down the ladders to the underground city. Four years, he thought, as he climbed the ladders down. Four years we've been here. It seems forever since we ran away that night. And for two of those years, Rex has been busy with something. Manufacturing merbohydrate and taking trips out into space. Why? Distress signal. The two words hit him with smashing impact. He wrapped both hands around the ladder to keep himself from falling down the shaft. He trembled and shook, and dizzy spots grew in his eyes. He raised his head and shouted, The fool! 
The lonesome echoes of his own madness came crashing back at him. He hugged the ladder and wept. He could not say why he was crying, except he felt he had been betrayed somehow. He knew he was young, too young to deal with this tremendous horror Rex was planning, and Mahort had sensed that horror. After a while, he started climbing up again. There was a flame in his heart, a heart that rived him, made him something less than human. He was going to kill Rex if Rex didn't talk, didn't tell him the details of the plan. As for the main plan, Carl already knew it. On the surface, he waited. The sun came up, moved redly toward noon. The spaceship came back. As Rex appeared in the opening airlock, face perspiring, lips set with a cruel satisfaction that did not belong to youth, Carl jumped him. It was over in a moment. Rex lay unconscious. When Rex came to, Carl had the ship in the sky again, driving toward the dying red sun. He left the controls again and stood over Rex, who was rope-bound to a chair. I think... Carl said, his eyes burning. I put two and two together at last. Took me a whale of a long time to do it, too. Now go ahead and talk. Rex's square face was set into a disinterested mold. He looked Carl up and down, shrugged. Sure, I'll talk, but it won't do any good, Carl. It's already fixed. Nothing you can do to change it. And it's funny you picked out today to check up on me. Just today? Carl asked hollowly. Just today. Rex spoke so calmly, it was as if all the acid bitterness in him had been alkalized in one moment. For the first time in many months, he was a kid again, without a secret thought, without an equivocation on his lips. Rex said, There's 200,000 tons of merbohydrates out there, Carl. It's taken me two years to manufacture the stuff. The most powerful explosive ever invented. You see, Carl, I wasn't as crazy as you thought when I said I was going to send up a distress signal. It's a matter of nine or ten hours, and you can't stop it. Carl stood with eyes closed, muscles iron hard. Rex, he said, give me the position coordinates of that 200,000 tons of merbohydrate. Rex gave him the coordinates. Carl set the ship on a slightly different course. An hour passed. The Wharton sun grew until it was a red globe glued to space. Carl operated the photo amplifiers, set the telescopic paralens into position. Space expanded. In the vision plate grew a tiny dot that seemed to rush rapidly into sight, though it was still several hundred thousand miles away. It resolved itself into detail. Countless neatly stacked and baled ingots of merbohydrate, each bale in turn attached to another by short lengths of wire. The mass was a thirty-foot cube. In the matter of size, it was a speck in space. In the matter of explosive potentialities, it was a bomb of untold violence falling toward the dying red star. Carl got another notch of speed from the ship. He was abruptly aware that sweat had formed stickily on his body. A blast of furnace heat was already radiating from the bulkheads. Behind him, Rex said derisively, 
save yourself the trouble. You can't catch up with it. It's inside the boiling zone, you idiot. For two years, Carl, that mass of merbohydrate was on an orbit around the sun. Every once in a while, I'd come out and add more to the main mass. Today, I figured I had enough. I hauled it out of its orbit, took it as close as I could to the sun, right smack to the edge of the boiling zone. Then I gave it a running start and let go. The sun and the merbohydrate will meet at the convergence of their trajectories. Then what? Rex laughed. Distress signal. It was hotter as they moved toward the sun. Carl was sopping. The very air danced. Under him, the chair was beginning to burn him. The cosmic bomb was a full 300,000 miles inside the boiling zone. Carl could never catch up with it. He wordlessly banked the ship in a long half-circle that put it a hundred miles inside the boiling zone, and then on the road out. He poured in every ounce of power he could, while thoughts zigzagged crazily in his head. He had gone beyond rage. He had ascended the scale of human emotion, and he was numb. When the ship was near Warda, he turned on Rex. What do you expect to gain by this? Rescue. What about the Whartons? A simmering violence burst in Rex's eyes. His muscles bulged against his bonds. The Whartons, he mimicked. The Whartons. If you love those Whartons so much, why don't you plan to live with them the rest of your life? They never did like me. And that goes double, Carl said gently. You don't murder people you don't like. Murder? The word came sharply. He relaxed. They don't use their sun. They won't miss it. How about their planet? Rex looked at him. Then his eyes shifted. He muttered, The explosion won't touch Werda. Too far away. Carl said, The explosion will rip that planet crossways and endways. It'll turn it inside out. It'll tear it up into little pin-sized lumps, roast and boil the lumps and dissipate the lumps into gases made of dancing free electrons. That big gob of gas will puff itself out over a few light years of space, and that'll be the end of Warda. Maybe you didn't think of that, or maybe you convinced yourself it wouldn't happen. A trapped expression grew on Rex's face. It won't happen, he shouted. He screamed, Let me alone! Stop badgering me! You can't change anything! I didn't know if it'd hurt Werda or not. I didn't care anymore. I came back to Werda to get you, just in case something happened I didn't figure on. All I cared about was getting home. I want to go home. He dropped his head, drawing in great tearing sobs, his broad shoulders quaking. Carl said calmly, Well, we're going back to Werda to get the Wertons. Rex raised his head his face violent with protest. We haven't got time. We'll take time. Rex cursed him viciously. In the meantime, Carl continued without change of tone. Sit there. Start thinking. Think about Mahord and the other Wardens. Think of how they saved our lives and accepted us as if we're a part of them. Think of all the hospitality you accepted there ye. Carl's voice was rising. Think of their dead cities. 
Think of all the dead men who built those cities, and the artists who made those cities beautiful with their statues and paints. Then think how you will have destroyed all that. Rex said nothing. Color was flooding from his face, his lips thinning until they formed one pale slash across his face. Carl looked at him with wordless contempt, then swung about to maneuver the ship for the final thousand miles to a landing. A gong sounded from the instrument board. It came so suddenly that Carl jumped halfway from the bucket seat. He gripped the edge of the board, eyes forced open so wide they hurt. He waiting, knowing he had misheard. The gong came again. Behind him, Rex made an insane gurgling noise. They've come! They've come! Carl's hands were shaking violently as he adjusted the teleview, snapped in the audio. In the teleview, gray clouds formed, took on shape, and that shape became the head and shoulders of a man in the trim, pale blue uniform of the Stellar Survey Institution. Small muscles around the man's eyes and mouth contracted as he saw Carl. He frowned. He said, You are Carl Wyant and Rex Oberling? Yes, sir, Carl said humbly. You will stay where you are. We will pick you up in seven hours. You may consider that a command. Yes, sir, replied Carl. But we can't obey it. I'd advise you, sir, not to come within ten billion miles of the dwarf red star. It's a potential supernova. We will meet you at... The officer's glance sharpened. You're talking nonsense. Why is Oberling bound in that chair? Carl said wearily, It's a long story, sir. May I ask your present position? The stellar survey man's image grew a little in the plate as he leaned forward. As if to get a better look at Carl's face, he drew back. He said, We are at present roughly twenty-two light days distant, viewing you by instantaneous fifth-order reception. That's even better than ten billion miles, sir. If you stay where you are and keep your beam on, we can signal you when we get a billion miles from Werda. Then you can come forward and pick us up. Before the officer could say what was starting on his lips, Carl banged his hand excitedly on the instrument board and shouted hysterically, I'm warning you, sir. I'm warning you. The man looked unsettled. His glance wavered. Very well, Wyant. It's a strange proceeding, but I trust you. We will expect you. The screen blanked. Fifteen minutes later, Carl landed the ship. He got up stiffly. Rex sat motionless, eyes turned straight ahead unblinking, unseeing. I'm leaving you here until I get the Wertons, Carl told him. Don't try anything silly. Rex moved his head until his eyes rested on Carl's. He said quietly, Carl, for your own good, don't bother. Do you think for a minute the Wertons are going to leave their planet at this stage of the game? They're done for anyway. You wouldn't expect a bunch of corpses to get out of their coffins and try a different coffin, would you? That's the way it is with the Whartons. When Carl said nothing, Rex said in that same quiet voice, Carl, I know. Carl turned uncertainly away, moved to the instrument board. His own voice sounded far away. I'll convince them, he said. 
I'll bring them back. They've got to come. Carl took all the keys out of the instrument board. Without the keys, the ship was inoperable. He left the ship, stumbled as in a dream across the dreary wastes of lifeless snow. Then, as the cold struck deep at his lungs, his thoughts clarified, and he went with quick-driven panic. How soon the merbohydrate would strike the red star, he had no idea. But it would be soon. He made a breakneck descent. He burst into that small section of one of the underground cities where the Wurtons lived, went straight to the Megan of Mahort. He told Mahort the whole story. Mahort sat cross-legged. A resigned sadness lidded his eyes. Carl knew his answer. He dropped to his knees. No, you can't speak for the rest of your people. They want to live, and the Wurtons can still be great. Why, why, we'll give you a planet in our own system. Mahort smiled as if at a secret, foolish thought. His eyes averted. Then he arose and drew Carl up with him. His eyes glittered with the reflected fluorescence of the underground. Carl was held rigid. Mahort said, You are youth, and you answer as youth would answer. I am age, Carl and I answer as only age can answer. We will stay. What is there to fear? What is there to grieve for? It is a great providence that sent you here to us. You see, soon we would have all died, but lingeringly. Now there is glory to dying, for there will be no ugly pain and we will not be unknown to the other peoples of the universe, Carl, for you will carry our immortality. That, Carl said bitterly, is a hell of an immortality. Mahort laughed. It is better than we expected. Now go. And Carl went blindly. He reached the ship in less than an hour. He entered, dogged the airlock shut went slowly toward the transparent door of the control room. He threw open the door and stood looking at the empty chair and the tattered strands of rope which had held Rex. He was drained of emotion, though, and he leaned weakly against the door jamb. Finally, he moved, left the ship, and spent another hour looking for Rex. He didn't find him. Rex had consciously obscured his tracks. He went back to the ship, smiling without mirth. That was funny. Rex drove himself crazy figuring out a way to get back to Earth for four years. Then he backed out. He had chosen the same path as the Wurtons, and maybe for as good a reason. He drove straight away from the dying red sun. A billion miles out, he was picked up by the stately ship of the Stellar Survey. He was ushered into the presence of the officer who had appeared in the teleview plate. That individual was cold in his welcome. You cost the taxpayers a mint of money, he growled. They've had ships on the lookout for you for four years. Where's the other young fellow? Carl told the story while the officer slowly tensed. Then he looked annoyed. It seems a little extreme for Oberling to have committed suicide. Maybe, sir, except that one doesn't go around destroying solar systems without a good reason. 
If you hadn't shown up when you did, there would have been a good reason. The officer sat silent. Yes, I suppose so. A classical bit of irony, that. Destroying a sun to attract rescuers. Then the rescuers spoil the drama of it by showing up ahead of time. And the funny part of it is that it would have worked. He seemed to recollect. He hastily snapped in the teleview, motioned Carl to come around to his side of the desk. Chances are, the officer said, consulting some figures, we'll see a merry hellfire in the next few minutes. Ten minutes later, the red star exploded. It cracked into three separate pieces. They held that position, each section racing from red to violet that changed blindingly to magnesium white. The glare smashed at the eyeballs. The three pieces in turn shattered each other as they puffed up. Then the hole spurted into a violence that lighted all the black sky with recurring, silently throbbing sheets of shattering luminescence. The stars were blotted out in that primeval surf of untamed energy. The planet Warda was caught, flamed in glory for the small part of a second. The big spaceship trembled in every beam and partition as the wave front of exploding light reached it. Distress Signal Distress Signal by Ross Rockland Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, Homer was a shy Faderfield bachelor. His visitor was a beautiful Pleiades girl. At any rate, she was a girl, and Homer had a problem. A Matter of Ethics, by Russ Winterbotham. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.